Hello and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Uh, I'm David Border-Giles, I'm a lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University and I'm joined as ever by my trusty co-host Timothy Neal, a Senior Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. We also come to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. Today, as usual, we're joined by a visiting fellow anthropologist to discuss their work, the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. And our guest today is the esteemed Associate Professor Tess Lee, who specialises in the anthropology of policy. Her fundamental interest is with issues of dysfunction, how it occurs, and to what, whom, and how it's ascribed. Looking at extraction industries, everyday militarization, houses, infrastructure, schools, and efforts to create culturally congruent forms of employment and enterprise from multiple perspectives. Her work asks why the path to realizing seemingly straightforward ambitions is so dense with obstacles. She also explores ways in which our Aboriginal families might tell their stories and commandeer policy openings and closings for their own end. She's the chief investigator of the Housing for Health Incubator, a member of the Caribbing Film Collective, and the author of two books, Darwin and Bureaucrats and Bleeding Hearts, both published by New South Books. And in addition, as is often our custom, today we're joined by a guest co-host from Deakin University. So for this episode, we've invited Dr. Cameo Daly, a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation, and a previous honoured guest on this very podcast. You may remember her. Cameo, welcome as well. Uh, She's a sociocultural and economic anthropologist whose work focuses on the politics of belonging, indigeneity and land. She has long-term research relationships with Aboriginal communities in Northern Australia, And some of her most recent work has been on live export and the pastoral industry, the cashless debit card, and Aboriginality in coronial inquests. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. So, we will start with our traditional starting point. Tess, honoured guest, how did you become engaged in anthropology? What brought you to the world? It's probably my favourite question because um, I was actually going to do psychology. I know, it's like um, the enemy discipline. (laughs) And I was at University of Western Australia doing psychology, six weeks in, really not liking it. And I was new to campus, didn't know my way around. And I'd just met um, a friend who also was new to campus, didn't know her way around. And we were wanting to meet for lunch. Neither of us had a common destination point, but we did know the general lecture room. So I attended her lecture prior to going to lunch. And that lecture was 101 Anthropology, being led by none other than Bob Tonkinson. And I was hooked. I absolutely knew to exit psychology that day and to join anthropology. Mm. Um, Later, I actually left University of Western Australia and shifted to the Australian National University for the rest of my undergrad. And there I met women's studies. So the two things, sort of a feminist analysis and anthropological studies, have been constants in my, in my worlds. And it explains why I'm where I am now, which is gender and cultural studies, rather than, say, a traditional anthropology department. Um, I'm always interested, when we get to this question, uh, what it reveals about the deeper roots of someone's interest in people. What was it about you that made that lecture feel like a turning point? Because where I... Th- I was interested in people, clearly, you know, and from a 
from a vantage point, i.e. from Darwin, where I was coming from, from a state high school background, I really didn't know what these different university courses actually meant, what the terms meant. And psychology seemed to me to imply that it was about understanding people. It kind of wasn't at the level that I was expecting it to. Mm. And coming from a place like Darwin, the sort of things that I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to come to grips with certainly weren't being analysed in introductory psychology. But sitting in Bob Tonkinson's class and hearing about these different cultural worlds and what differences they threw up, what commonalities they threw up, what questions about life itself you could think through by understanding that not everybody is the same above or under the skin. That was what attracted me. That resonated. And so how did you get from that sort of broad interest uh, in anthropology to being interested in uh, and does it feel fair to say that you do the anthropology of policy? Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. I do do the anthropology of policy. I also do ethnography of organisations. I try and understand what is this thing that we call the state. And I try and understand our dependencies on some of those big, big kind of proper noun issues and everyday worlds and futures. So how did I come to the anthropology of policy, if I restate your question? That comes about because when I uh, was graduating with my honours degree, it was the recession we had to have. Children, it was a moment. Uh, So, you know, interest rates were 18% and, you know, thinking about where your $2 went actually was a real question. So at that time, my partner wanted to switch his profession. He was an aeronautical engineer and had come to the realisation that we don't manufacture aircraft in Australia and so to continue with that profession would mean leaving Australia and joining an industrial city somewhere nasty. Mm. So he starts doing a second degree and had decided to join private industry, quite a precarious part of private industry, and we had a baby. So one of us needed to be pulling in a proper job, you know, proper income. Mm. So I applied for and got a job in the Commonwealth Public Service as a graduate administrative assistant, which was a training program for becoming an uber bureaucrat. Um, I applied for that job with many thousands of other people. This was a deep recession we were in. You had to sit examinations. You had to go through a whole lot of processes. It was a lot of checking. But the training program that I was then on for the year Uh, was outstanding. I learnt how legislation was promulgated. I learnt about how budgets and cabinets worked. I um, understood how data was analysed and I understood how ministerials were put together. Stuff that's been grist to my mill in many, many circumstances because it's a lick Mm. of paint away from applying for grants, from running uh, research programs, from project managing teams and so on within the academy. That is a sort of a background. So I went back to the Northern Territory, my hometown, Uh, as a bureaucrat. And when I was there, I was perplexed by this strange interrelationship between anthropological understandings and bureaucratic understandings, because this is a sort of a frontierish kind of space where uh, ethnologisms cohabit with governmentality. And I realised that instead of doing the PhD that I had at the back of my brain, which was actually about abortion practitioners... Instead, I needed to come to grips with this scene that I was in where um, Aboriginal people were the subject and the object of much bureaucratic um, decision-making and overdetermination, with great consequences but also with a seeming futility. Mm. 
Uh, and that became my PhD project. That turned me towards this thing which I didn't know existed called the anthropology of policy because the only people asking similar-ish questions without taking the state for granted were people who were forming up this new sub-discipline, the anthropology of policy. In your work, you come across as having like a deep sense of empathy with bureaucrats as well as, as having a really firm critique. Do you think that that kind of balance of the two comes about from your own experience as a bureaucrat? I think so. I hope that balance is there, actually. I hope that's not just a, a nice um, gift you're giving me. I strive hard to get that because it's too easy to shoot fish in a barrel when you're critiquing all the inadequacies of bureaucratic formations and all the mistakes, all the infidelities, the bad practice and um, the harms. So it's a switch to then carry forward really an anthropological tenet, which is critical empathy. If Mm -hmm. I'm in the shoes of these people, how differently am I acting? What are the constraints on my decision-making or would I be able to act otherwise? Am I just presuming that there's all this uh, freedom to be an act otherwise that in fact isn't there? So I think without ethnographic understanding of the insides of these formations, we are doing very poor anthropological judgment. And so empathy I think is part of that, but critique is too. An insider-outsider perspective is um, one I used to have. It's been a long time between drinks with me and being a bureaucrat. Uh, Again, that said, I've got analogies from being in different management roles inside universities. So the book you wrote out of your PhD thesis, Bureaucrats and Bleeding Hearts, it's a confronting book in some ways. What's your impression of how it landed in those contexts, in those contexts of the bureaucracies that administer Aboriginal people's lives? Uh, To be honest, I was absolutely surprised by people even reading it because I find it a bit indigestible myself when I look back. I mean, I think... In hindsight, you're a critic of your your style. I totally am because I think there was too much of an anxiety to show, look, I, I understand these theories too and I can write complex sentences as well and because I was coming to all of this with an absolutely heightened sense of imposter syndrome, mm. you know, coming in from Darwin, coming in from working class backgrounds, all of those things were, were always prey to my voice. And the voice in that book, to me, shrieks anxiety, shrieks lack of confidence. Mm. So when I push that aside so and try and read it as others have read it, the gratifying part has been that it is picked up. I've had phone calls from nurses in remote areas who've said, this was a Bible. I felt like I was looking in the mirror. And that's still a feedback that I get to this day. So in September this year, I'm going to be sitting down with people who are training various kinds of welfare profession um, in Copenhagen who have taken up that book and are thinking through its implications and want to uh, reflect on what what its implications are for their practice. Because wanting to do good in the world and understanding that that also uh, makes you part of a system which is disciplining and shaping other people towards state desires, that ambivalence and that contradiction is things that real people uh, resonate with and are working through to this day. So I've been surprised and, you know, it's gratified. But the lesson for me in my own distaste for its voice has been, in my future work, has been to try and be no less complex but far more accessible in how I might try and convey information or concepts. Mm. So in the the introduction to that book, you write, 
maybe this is uh, a moment to reflect on how you'd frame it now. Uh, you write, the unifying aesthetic of failure in these cycles of argument and debate, point and counterpoint, is essential to the culture of remedialism. Uh, the rhetoric of failure is grist for its reinventing mill. The tropes of interventionary necessity are always underwritten by the promise of one day getting it right. Uh, now, that really resonates with me working on homelessness in the United States. Uh, and, you know, in the, those points where you're talking about the constant endeavour of quantifying and then going back and quantifying it again, that resonates with people I know who are invested in counting how many people are homeless every year and the number goes up every year. So that resonates really well with me thinking about bureaucracies and the kind of non-profit industrial context in other places. So two ways of interpreting that question. One is, mm. would that be how I'd write that set of sentences now? And I've signalled no, but is yeah. the message still applicable and do I think it carries forward? Answer yes. Mm -hmm. And the answer yes part is, I actually gave this talk recently. On any given day, I can guarantee you there's going to be more applications to re-describe mm -hmm. pathology or problem than there is to try and work out ways to... Uh, fix what is broken. Mm -hmm. And the fix what is broken part, particularly in relationship to the work I'm currently focusing on, broken houses, that is a challenge for academics. It's a challenge because we don't have the skill set to project manage trades, etc., etc. So you can answer it at a really pragmatic level. But it's also a challenge because for the same amount of time and money that it would take you to do one community well, you could count a state, you know, an entire region, mm -hmm. and that will give you a good data set to generate multiple series of publications mm -hmm. and insights which are far more uh, generative for our, you know, current requirement for outputs for the given amount of money and time. Mm -hmm. Plus, you won't actually have to wrangle with all of these difficulties of live time, real people relationships. So there's a whole lot of kind of incentives mm -hmm. to re-describe problems, in fact, over and over. Mm -hmm. And the re-description of the problems leads itself to a reproductive machinery. In other words, the count is always going to be inadequate. You will always be able to point to the shortfall, the problem with the method, its inapplicability elsewhere, its incommensurable given that you've these new questions that need urgently to be asked and so on. So you can also make a very good case for why your new description is required now, you know, mm -hmm. urgently. Plus, you can make it seem really, really culturally inclusive because you could probably, if you're talking about Indigenous issues, uh, marshal some Indigenous people to be part of your descriptive count. You can engage community assistance and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So what's not to love? Honest to goodness, what's not to love? And then from a funding point of view, if you sit on that side of the ledger, and I have, you've got a little pot of money and you're trying to uh, make sure that it's distributed over things that are quite transparently good and quite transparently engaged and quite transparently meeting needs. And having it done in some little place that you've never heard of and is actually expensive to get to mm -hmm. um, and can be relativised to be made the same as something that you do in the CBD in terms of engagement, mm -hmm. that also affects how you're dispersing these um, small pots of money. 
which you have to be accountable for as well. Somebody else is asking you questions about how equitably and fairly did you dispense that money for a given set of outputs that you can then claim. So there's a whole, I think, a series, you know, a set of political economic questions about research. So I think that this reproductive mill thing still holds. Can I say what I would add to it now, though? Because what I was also pointing to there was a culture of remedialism. And I think that has changed. The culture of remedialism has changed. It's been a victim of the hollowing out of the bureaucracy and the far less uh, insistent demand that programs are developed that have real coherence as opposed to impression management coherence. And I think remedialism has been replaced by opportunism and short-termism and a whole lot of other sort of isms that we could add to that description. I think it's been a victim. Are there any examples that jump right to mind? I'd put it this way. It's more in the realm of what would now be unimaginable. What is now unimaginable is that we would have a Prime Minister who wanted to welcome uh, refugees to Australia to the point of inventing a medium called SBS Mm. in order to cultivate a cultural appetite within the Australian domain and populace for that. It's unimaginable that the same government would be influencing school curricula so that there was welcome rather than hostility. Now, that, that's let's play with what is right now unimaginable tells us about what's shifted and what government is attuned to and creating and what we've become attuned to as a result of that. We've become attuned to the idea that everything is going to be whittled away. Mm-hmm. Things are going to be harder. People need to be more self-sufficient. They need to be more self-skilling, more self-renewing. That precarity is the new truth. It's just an is. It's not something that can be questioned. It's something people have to tool themselves up for and just accept and swallow. All of these conditions, which are actually, none of them inevitable, they are all cultivated. Those are my roundabout ways of addressing your question. Mm. Also, a similar question about in 2019, how do some of these things look different? And it's something I struggle with too. Uh, you know, how do we make a critique of the epistemology of the non-profit industrial complex or the bureaucratic managerialism when there are critiques coming from the right as well? This is partly wrapped up in the kind of quote-unquote post-truth moment. So I've been seeing critiques come from the right of the kinds of data created in the homeless sector. Right? And people are saying, well, we just don't trust that, uh, that data because it comes from the liberal meaning left-wing establishment. They're co-opting some of the same critiques we might make of you know, bureaucratic expertise, but to kind of troubling ends. So yeah, how do we critique the kind of objectified knowledge that people are creating in managerial and non-profit sectors in a moment when those critiques are coming from the right as well? A few responses to that. We can't bulletproof everything and I think the effort to try creates more and more abstracted sort of formulations where the writing becomes less granular in the very effort to uh, make it conceptually sound and proofed against Mm co-option. Whereas I think what anthropology does is offer detail. It offers grit. It offers the things that are difficult to smooth away. And in so doing, we should be doing that 
not just in a critique mode, but understanding what these shortcomings are part of. So whatever you're looking at, I mean, nothing withstands close scrutiny. Nothing is as good up close as it is projected to be, our own research included. So just critique without understanding what generates shortcomings, which anthropologically, to stay with the detail, even when we're looking at what things are part of, rather than naming big global things, like blaming everything on neoliberalism or blaming everything on, say, post-truth, those sorts of big concepts which more and more I feel quite uncomfortable with because I genuinely don't quite know what's being named. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the term has become so capacious, it's sort of meaning is vacated. Mm -hmm. So I think for anthropologists we should stick to our knitting and what we're best at, which is constantly, yes, making things complex, but through groundedness. Mm. Then, if it is taken up by some Nazi, you can counter-arsenal that with Mm. the detail that would make that simplification really obvious, Mm -hmm. you know, that extraction really obvious. Mm. But if we've been panhandling in abstractions only, Mm -hmm. then we don't really have much as a counter-argument. And I think, you know, the vulnerability is sort of built in. And the really kind of the immediate thing that jumps to mind is the way in which you've done this work around that concept of the state, right? And unpicking this idea that the state is sort of coordinated or or rational and putting forward an idea that that's a fantasy and that there's a sort of anarchy within the state that you sort of tease out. And one of my one of my favourite quotes, which has stuck with me for a long time from your work from 2014, is this idea that that policy ethnography conducted as an event history or as policy biography enacts its own disappearances. Can you talk a bit about what that means? What I mean by that is if we don't understand that policy wants to represent itself as a coherent narrative in order that it can be opening up a space that justifies more policy, <laughs> right? It's rightness. It's, it's rightness... Um, it's, uh, As it, a paradigm. Almost. Yeah, and, and it authorises its existence and it authorises and reopens um, the need and the, for the government to actually be occupying this space. So if you realise that that's part of its uh, statecraft is to present teleological versions of its own unfurlings and that we play into that when we give policy unfurlings very neat biographies that we have narrativized in such a way that we're only a lick of paint away from how policy people do it themselves. We've lost our anthropology in that. So to try and be more true to actually it's more, it's, it's what I call project stutters, it stop starts, it's incohate spreads and um, disappearances. You have to try and find a way to represent that, to theorize that without also creating a bit of a dog's breakfast in terms of description. Because um, if you try and do too much sort of cinema verite in relationship Mm. to anarchic unfurlings, I think you've created something that's very rarefied and hard to read. So the challenge of trying to narrate policy incoherence and how coherence is an artefact, which is 
very skillfully produced and to honour the skill that goes into producing it, that is what I try and do in my representations of what I see. I'm just trying to call it as I see it and come up with descriptive adequacy. But it's difficult because all the tropes that are available to you and the demands for coherence for a verdict, uh, almost an evaluative kind of posture, to say, well, did it do what it did, you know, as if we are removed from it. That's actually a very omnipresent demand. It's very hard to resist. That kind of counter-evaluative framework after evaluative framework. Yes, we're mimicking the techniques and we're buying into, I think, a form of representation which is actually untrue to the subject matter. But that said, it's actually really, there's not too many models for how to do it differently. And so I've recently started to theorise different ways to approach the very difficulty of it, but to describe it. So I think about what is policy when it's artefactual, meaning it's paper, it's legislation, it's a regulation, it's a document, it's a report, it's a decision by um, a funder. It's, you know, so it's got this sort of uh, entity quality. So I'm calling that policy artefact or the artefactual versus what it is when it is more ambient. It is embedded in our surrounds, it's saturating our conditions and it's got its haunts, its policy decisions that were made some time ago that have disappeared. We don't know what that decision was or set of decisions, plural, those enactments were, but they are definitely conditioning what we're in. Like, to make that really concrete, they are conditioning where the street was laid, they are conditioning how that subdivision was made, they are conditioning, you know, how high the building that we're sitting in right now was able to go. So this would, I would argue, is part of our policy ambient, that we are saturated within policy decisions, past and present and future, all the time. So now I'm trying to think about how we move between the artefactual and the ambient and describe the two. And it plays, you have to play with temporality in so doing. I think one of the really tricky things about it is the artifacts that you want to draw attention to are almost by design complex and boring yes you know and this i was reminded of this by the paper that you were one of the authors on with kirsty howie on paper fair and what you were describing in that case was you know the the masses of paper that aggregate around land use agreements for the use of uh, indigenous land in the Northern Territory. Just these boxes and boxes of paper that have become routinized, but also just so incredibly complex that even to describe them, to make the artifact interesting, is to go against its design, almost. Yes, yes, yes. And yet, what we can do analytically is point to the power of banality as a technique of power. We can point to unreadability as exactly a form of administrative violence. When the killer paragraph is sitting on um, subsection 114 slash C on page 182, and that's the one where, in fact, you're going to be losing everything, but you're unable to get to it because everything else has basically bruised your brain already, then that is what we can describe. Part two of that, though, is that we also do the digging in work of reading that stuff, and that is really hard. I mean, the Town Camp Review in the Northern Territory was famously 18,000 pages. So who's meant to read that? What work is that unreadability doing? We can analyse that as well. And I understand your point that turning that into a kind of a 
scandalous sort of situation gives it an excitement which takes away in the representation is not being faithful to how its power is being prosecuted is precisely because it refuses to be read because of its unreadability. But that's the cinema verite approach, right, again. So do we really need to kind of be truly, truthfully overlaying everything with a perfect match in our representations of it? I mean, I don't necessarily have an answer for that, but I absolutely recognise the paradox that you're pointing to. But I do want more people to be paying attention to the boring texts, that's for sure, because there's a lot in them. And if you can get through the regulatory sort of palimpsests, you can realise, oh, look at that. Only 18 communities are governed by the Water Act and everybody else, it's okay for them to have unregulated, unsafe water. Or if it's not okay, it's certainly not prosecutable if uh, it's found to be wanting. So to get to that, you have to do a lot of digging through unreadable documents. And so there is a politics to that. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about, from the perspective of someone who's critical of the whole apparatus of policy, what moments there are in policy that feel like productive places to intervene. I've heard you cite the uh, the distinction that prison abolitionists make between reformist reforms and transformative reforms or something along those lines. Are there ways that you think about in that massive architecture of 18,000 pages of paperwork? Are there ways that or tactics that you've found for making useful political interventions? Um, yes and yes and no and no and no. So even within the small little gestures, the reformist reform. The reformist reform is one that says, oh, look at this. These Dondale Juvenile Detention Centre is a really unpleasant environment. There's terrible things happening in it. This needs to be fixed or at least made less horrendous. I would be the last person to say, no, because that's not revolutionary enough. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so reformist reform is uh, certainly not to be chucked out, but it's about where do you put the full stop. So we'd say semicolon, continuance of the sentence, and we want to get to a place where we're not locking up 10-year-old plus young people for confected kinds of injury to society. So I think it's that would be part of my answer. Then I also, in breaking down what policy is and what it isn't, you can be far more precise about using it as a tool and far less imprecise, relatedly, about not just blanket calling for better policy as if that has any meaning. It's another kind of capacious Uh, get-out-of-jail-free term that analysts too freely use to just conclude a critique because they don't know how to get out of their own muddle. Uh, It's lazy and anthropologically we should again stay with the detail what does that mean and what are we asking for when you do something blanket like that. When you do that you can sort of work out what are the opportunities and also what policy isn't useful for. Right, so it's not useful for everything but it's useful for some really kind of concrete things. And I've thought about this long and hard because so often critique just goes to the problem of a regulation or the, you know, the inadequacy of a thing, blah, blah, blah. When the responsibility of saying, and what in addition would we be asking for and what does that ask require? It's not just a, a request in a vacuum. 
That's where critical empathy about, you know, the work that it takes for anyone inside those systems to try and make those systems work. And they are trying really hard. The thing is we need to understand that bureaucracies are no different from universities in having um, their own longevity, <laughs> their own corporate memory, their ability to kind of stick with problems and develop deep knowledge about things also challenge. The sort of the scientific and technological areas that you work in, Tim, are probably some of the last frontiers where actual scientists might accrue some deep knowledge about fire in this particular region um, and have been at that job for, you know, 10 mm, years, say. Yeah. But elsewhere, portability of your skills, uh, career mobility is seen as not being hijacked to, by the community, not being hijacked to a specialism. In fact, being able to rove over different issues. And we can see that inside uh, our own academic domains where people move into management and suddenly they become the people who are running the legal areas or whatever and they were originally a philosopher or something like that. So that sort of, you know, um, is it real? I don't know. But this sort of claimed ability to generalise is what's of more value inside bureaucracies too. And in addition, to talk about that third sector you raised, the not-for-profit, a lot of stuff has been outsourced and made more fragmented because it's been put on short-term contracts and outsourced to the so-called civic sector, as if that's sort of somehow supplementing the work of government as opposed to being part of its atrophy. Can I ask a follow-on from that? One thing I'm interested in is the role of experimentation in policy. So one area that I'm most familiar with is uh, alcohol management policy. Um, and there's a 2009 inquiry into alcohol management policies in Queensland. And one of the key findings of that was actually not to call for better policy or different policy, but to call for experimental policy on alcohol management. And I can see that carries with it huge amounts of risk, but I'm interested to hear about what you might think about an idea of not calling for better policy but for calling for sort of bolder moves in policy that might be where the outcomes might be less known or less determined. I actually think I don't know enough about that particular act but I suspect a ruse and why I say that is that's exactly the rationale that was behind the intervention the notion that you know what we need now is bold thinking and you know we cannot be you know everything else up to this date has been too beholden to the idea of Indigenous culture and that was sort of given capital letters and scare quotes. And so boldness and experimentation also raised my alarm bells because, of course, the Northern Territory is the agar plate for exactly that, for everybody, because constitutionally it's allowed. And that means you get so much roguery in what transacts and, you know, there, there are people experiencing the toll of that. So I have those visceral reactions to the proposition because I think it's already experimental in many ways. So what's that call about and what when I say it's a ruse? I think with alcohol policy, the elephant in the room is, well, why wouldn't you basically stop distilling this widely available drug? Why have we created conditions where functioning alcoholism is part of our culture? And those questions can't be asked. I mean... It was a shock to me to discover the really clear relationship between alcohol consumption of any kind and breast cancer. It's not a small relationship. It's a profound and large correlation. The British chief medical officer, female, tried to say we need health warnings. 
because this is as profound a relationship as smoking is for lung cancer. She almost lost her job in just saying, we should do this. <laughs> uh, now, the call for bold policy and experimental policy, what's that disguising? I think it's disguising the conversation where no one's wanting to have about what are we doing with available social drugs in our society and which ones would you now make legal and which ones wouldn't you if you could start again. And I'd imagine that perhaps alcohol might be one of the ones you'd be a bit more careful of if you were doing it from a bold and experimental <laughs> But also non, let's go back to my idea of the ambient, not already saturated grounds which are predetermining the constraints for thinking. Would now be a good moment to follow up about the Housing for Health Incubator? Absolutely, great. Which is a project I know you've been involved in and it's a, it's a way of thinking about how to productively intervene in policy. Uh, could you just tell us a bit more about it, where it came from? And also uh, along similar lines, can you tell us how you ended up in a housing protest in New Orleans in your active way? Oh, my goodness. You guys have got spies. All right. So. Facebook. <laughs> I, I saw this. <laughs> um, yeah, you were in New Orleans, Cameo. I'm not going to trust you again. So Housing for Health Incubator, the term Housing for Health comes from the work of Health Habitat, which are a not-for-profit company um, that have been in existence for at least three decades, founded to try and deal with living conditions in Indigenous communities and in particular to try and find a way to focus on those things inside a house that accord um, the means for any householder to prosecute what you might call healthy behaviours, i.e., that there's safe water coming in and there's wastewater going out, that when you go to turn on the electricity, you don't blow yourself up and you can safely store and prepare food. Uh, you're not exposed to toxins. So actually there's really nothing in the list of things that you would focus on that any of us should think, what the actual hell are you doing trying to you know, make sure toilets work? So it's really kind of basic sorts of propositions. But making sure that the health hardware, that I, those things that offer those functions, the taps, the toilet fittings, the, even the washers, function as they're meant to, requires more than just looking at it or more than just guessing that it will via a Toyota survey. Right, we have drove past that house. It looks like it's in new condition. We reckon it fits the bill. We'll just give it a tick, which is not that far away from how it is and can be done. So going inside and actually pressing things, flushing things, testing things with yes, no answers, no room for ambiguity answers, and then fixing what you see to be at fault is the heart of this housing for health methodology. It's called survey fix. Survey and fix. And it comes from the mantra of Fred Hollows, which was no survey without service. So six months later, when you have gotten licensed trades in to fix those more complicated things that you can't just do on the spot, survey fix again, have you improved the function of the health hardware? Now, I was really taken with this program because of its high practicality, but also because when it's been measured and it has been in New South Wales, which has been the most consistent jurisdiction to apply housing for health methodologies over time. They measured communities that have systematically had their health hardware repaired and maintained versus communities that haven't. In terms of childhood infection hospitalisation rates, there's a 40% reduction. That's a very big kind of impact for making sure people have the means to implement the things that everyone's telling them they ought to do. 
What it comes up against and intervenes in as a program and as an intervention is the idea that everybody just needs more education, that they need to be told more about what they should and ought to be doing um, and that their willfulness is the problem. It's rather than thinking, well, does anyone actually have the capacity in terms of what's going on inside the house? Uh, it also relieves some of the burden of overcrowding. doesn't change overcrowding because people do tend to accrue to around things that work, you know, rather than being in the house where the toilet's backed up. But it makes a world of difference to be, you know, 15 in a three-bedroom house with the toilet backed up and 15 in a... Okay, so we're getting the picture. Unfortunately, a key author of the Housing for Health method died suddenly three years ago. His name was Paul Folloris and he was an architect of an extraordinary man. And I was concerned that the methodology would be lost because we've also seen that with the turnover in governments and a sort of the sporadic way in which Indigenous policy is on and off and on and off, that what the Commonwealth Government used to know about repairing and maintaining houses has been walked away from. Can I correct myself? I just implied that that was a function of memory. And now I actually think that it's not a function of memory. I think it's a function of successful policy. And it's a successful policy to not to have to put in that consistent attention to health hardware and to take on the responsibility as a Commonwealth government for repair and maintenance when everything signals that they're trying to get out of the business of direct service delivery. So when I switch and step into the shoes of and follow the thing that I've been saying, we need to be anthropologists, I step into the shoes of what's going on. I think actually me thinking that it's, oh, you've just forgotten what works is possibly a little bit naive. But anyway, that's just a self-correction. And in being concerned that all of that would be, all of that really good work would be lost, um, I, I proposed uh, setting up this incubator so that we'd have a research relationship with Health Habitat. And in that research relationship, not only would we attempt to help them with whatever their practical problems were, but we would also ask them questions that are abstract and that a, you know, on the tools group of people don't have the time to do. And those questions concern how would you make this consistently applied? How can repair and maintenance be something that is consistently done? It's not accidental, it's not sporadic, it is just taken for granted that it is well funded and well done. Lovely simple question, endlessly complex in, the, um, in how you might answer, answer it and thinking through what is policy success and for whom is part of how you might make an analytical inroad into that question. I guess I'm wondering, now that you're deploying into something quite practical, and I also realise you avoided the question about activewear in New Orleans, <laughs> but now that you're deployed into something quite practical, do you have to park at all the critical, self-critical part of things? Do you think you would write you know, an ethnography of the very venture that you're engaged in? Um, yes, if I thought that was what my killer points, my burning issue and desire was to do, I wouldn't stop myself. I don't believe in writing with a almost like a bureaucratic monkey on your shoulder. Um, that said, I treat my collaborations with exactly the same ethical protocols as you would treat a collaboration with an Indigenous community, i.e., let me just check in with you 
that this thing that I'm going to say still sounds true to you. Because I think you can actually be quite critical as if there's some fidelity to truths, you know, to, th- to people's real experiences. That's what I mean by truths, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the truth. But, you know, that there's a people resonate with what you're describing and if it's cast in such a way that you're not sort of saying, and it's your fault, you three people who are operating a volunteer network that you didn't solve the problems of the world, you know, you're not writing it that way. You're contextualising, to go back to that first point, you're contextualising the shortcoming. Then I think, actually, I haven't felt hemmed in and I also think, and surely science and technology studies gives that permission too, that you can think in very practical ways about very practical things and they always take you to some quite profound conceptual issues where you, again, go back into um, needing to wrangle with your own brain, very hard to pinpoint, etc. So, you know, the world can be in a micro detail. And that issue definitely is generated by any encounter with the practical. Yeah, I think that's probably something that's actually underdone in some critical work is an actual engagement with the everyday lived reality of making policy or working in a small NGO and checking in on whether or not your analysis has any purchase. Your work has included some experimental approaches that I'd like to touch on in relation to research, but also kind of in, ter- in terms of dissemination, uh, engaging with artists and performance. And you recently uh, had a workshop in Sydney on everyday militarisms. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences of trying these experimental approaches and why you pursued them, maybe what, what you thought they might have to offer? Absolutely delighted to do so. And then I'll finish with why am I in Lycra in New Orleans? Oh, we're not um, going to miss out. We're going to get yeah. to it. Okay. Right. So... Firstly, on everyday militarisms, just to say why that before, why also that and artists. Everyday militarisms is part of a set of reckonings trying to come to grips with what are we surrounded by that also helps to explain that uh, chaotic policy stop-start environment that anyone looking at Indigenous anything inevitably encounters. And for me, it's part of just thinking about the saturated ambient worlds that we are in and trying to come up with new lenses for it. So it's a lens. It's a handy lens to use. It's not the only lens. It's not an uber description. Uh, it's not totalising. I think it's, it can be totalising in its everywhereness because... Mm-hmm. Um, militarism is everywhere. Militarism is everywhere, like water. So you have to then try and work out, well, where do I put the boundaries? How do I turn this back into an object that can actually be described? So the work is kind of analytically challenging and ongoing and very sort of in its early days, uh, collaboratively with um, an awesome person called Astrid Anamonis, who's at the University of Sydney, an eco-feminist, and also with feminist analysts at UC Davis and UC Irvine, Jennifer Terry and Karen Kaplan. And we have been experimenting with this form called the collaboratory. And in that collaboratory, we've taken very seriously how do you mix with different disciplines, so uh, including with artists, how do you experiment with methods so that you can see commonplace things perhaps with a different refraction of the lens, and how do you mentor from a feminist ethics of care? All of those things also being questions about labour and whose labour and how much of the unpaid labour does one invest in all of those things if you're trying to do things well. 
and by making each of those questions a question, each of those questions a method and each of those questions something that we open up and probe and talk about. So moving then to what's gained by working with artists, it's a couple of things. I was going to do fine arts before the psychology degree back in that early days. Oh, right. Yes. Mm. And I was accepted with my portfolio at Monash yeah. University. And then right at the last minute, I absolutely had cold feet because I thought, I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think I can get a career out of this and I need to be practical. I had the same experience. Did you? Yeah. Tell me about that, Tim. I was... Uh, <laughs> I, I went to the interview for fine arts school in Auckland, took my portfolio along, did the interview, and yeah, I uh, walked out and called my parents and said, no, I'm not going to fine arts school. But I got, I got in uh, and yeah, I didn't end up going. Went and did arts instead. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But mine was arts by way of a failed experiment with psychology. <laughs> Very short-lived. But yes, so I had that. So it's always been there, like um, as a... Something that has always felt like a kinship system, like an, a natural kind of alliance, and I've never been afraid of it. I don't like all art. It's not like I suspend my own critical judgment, and I don't like all artists. I mean that that's not. It's not just a happy kind of. <laughs> no, it's like you know. I, but I. But I I thought about um, I've thought about this, and I think it's not often said. Like it doesn't change the way the world works, right? You're still looking for people who are good to work with, who you have affinity with, um, that you have camaraderie with, that this is going to be a little bit joyful as well as generative. You trust them. You trust that they're going to be contributing. You're not going to be left rowing a boat on your own. All of those things, all those requirements, still obtain. It's not just magic happens because artist. So that all said. Working with artists and filmmakers and people who are working, say, with sound or, you know, coming at issues, commonplace issues differently, just makes everything open up again to new forms of thought and probative analysis. And trying to refresh yourself in that way is what I'm seeking there. And I would say the same when I work with veterinary epidemiologists, you know, uh, which I've done, and pursuing the question of rabies, not um, if, but when it comes to Australia. And that kind of working with people who are thinking about issues that have got affinity with what you're looking at but is coming at it very differently, if you're open-minded enough and also have a sense of I don't need to become that but it opens up questions for me uh, and, and new ways of thinking about it, then, I, you know, and I'm endlessly um, curious about what other people make of things. So the... Everyday Militarism Collaboratory is still on the road and I'll do a little um, promo, if I might. We are meeting at the American Studies Association um, conference in Hawaii early November and we're going to um, collectivise beforehand and perform our research. You, you look a little like you're wincing. I'm, yeah, I'm wincing and I'm kind of hunching my shoulders as I describe it because this is really out of my comfort zone. My idea of a nightmare is karaoke. I love karaoke. I know. As a side note, we're doing karaoke later on with, <laughs> yeah, with Tess. Yeah. 
So you know how people have nightmares where they're back at school or something like that? Mine, mine is, you know, suddenly you're in front of a crowd and you're having to sing or something like that. So for me, this is deep discomfort zone. And because of that, I think it'll force me to think about myself differently. Why? Because I'm in my 50s now and I think not just um, physically but I think conceptually is a really easy route to just kind of ossify with how you think about things and just to cross-reference a conversation that I had with Cameo about the importance of more senior anthropologists continuing to pay attention to what next generation scholars are doing and not just complaining and being ignorant of what they're doing because you haven't put in the time to find out. So I don't want to be that person. I really don't want to be that person. Which brings me to Lycra. I told you it I'd always get comes us there. in somewhere. There we go. Here we go. Okay, so we were in New Orleans for the geography conference and I had just seen Cameo Daly's amazing paper. And then I skived off of that conference. <laughs> I skived off because as part of the Housing for Health Incubator, a postdoctoral fellow, Dr. Liam Grilly, is based most of the time in New Orleans and we're trying to both understand what's particular to New Orleans but also use the refraction of New Orleans to rethink what are potential presences and futures in Australia. Because New Orleans is a very rich city, as everybody would know, and it has everything on a plate. It is sinking it is a military-industrial complex like no other. It is, has got a racial history, an extraordinary racial history. It is fought over, so it is in some ways weirdly like the Straits of Malacca in being contested territory and recontested. It still has an Indigenous presence, and no matter what way you look at it, there are a thousand things that New Orleans can tell about Australian possibilities. So we're trying to think back about housing and health and infrastructure and legacy issues in Australia by the mechanism of boomeranging from New Orleans. So I was in New Orleans and while, when I skived off, it was to go on a protest march with uh, people who were celebrating Martin Luther King anniversary but also... Um, not celebrating, protesting, the repeal of a piece of legislation which had made it easier for people coming out of jail to get rental tendencies. And, um, of course, you know, with obvious consequences that if you don't have that, then people who most clearly end up basically um, back in jail or homeless because getting tenancies is so diabolically hard if you've got a criminal record. Mm -hmm. And that was what the protest was about. But the lovely thing about it, even though the issues were really grim, doing a protest in New Orleans is really celebratory. You do it with trombones and people singing and, you know, doing a marching band style with sort of blues and it was extraordinary and you're expected to sashay. So I did a little bit of sashay in <laughs> awkward white girl style. But no karaoke. <laughs> but no karaoke. But it was a really amazing way of experiencing what people there living through things and wanting to say something about it. And they welcomed, you know, stranger uh, middle-aged white lady from um, Australia by saying, yep, paint your sign. So <laughs> I said, no, something now or something. <laughs> 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 marched away with my sign, yeah, and you've uh, caught me on Facebook. <laughs> so in the last couple of years, I've made some forays into American academia as a person 
invited to give a seminar now and then. And in those spaces, I found that you are one of the people that people cite, they're familiar with about Australian academia. Doing this labor has made me very aware of the fact that we don't really get noticed, we, by which I mean Antipodean scholars, you know, have to do a certain amount of labor to be noticed in that place of publishing and research power. You know, what do you think you've done that's enabled you to kind of travel into those spaces? Did you have to do a lot of traveling over there? A lot of aeroplanes, I would suggest. Well, you warned me that you were going to ask me a surprise question. And this is a surprising question for me because it's actually, I wouldn't have guessed that that would even be the situation. I don't have a sense of myself anywhere. I really don't. And I still carry residual imposter syndrome, even at the University of Sydney. Well, I should say especially at the University of Sydney. So it's a curiosity that you're raising, which I'm ignorant of. If I'm to hazard guesses, and that's all they are, that's the status, it's this pure speculation, I would say that perhaps there's been some pieces that have carried. There's been two essays that I would say may have travelled into American environments. And the first one was This Is Not a Pipe in Public Culture because it preceded or was just on the edge of this flourishing then of anthropology of infrastructure work. And I wasn't really au fait with that, you know, this moment in anthropology, but it was about to happen. So that was just an accident of timing because I was perplexed about something else. I was perplexed then as now about corroding houses. And that essay was an attempt to come to grips with how an aesthetic about houses drives a materiality about them. And the interplay between René Magree and Foucault on his Magree's painting, The Treachery of Images, um, which people often refer to as This Is Not a Pipe, and Foucault writes a little essay, This Is Not a Pipe, which is a dialogue with Magree, was actually a really interesting kind of entry point for thinking about This Is Not a Pipe, literally, if it's not connected to an effluent disposal system, and if a pipe is not a pipe because you can't smoke it, a pipe is not a pipe if it's not connected. This is not a house. So that was sort of the set of entailments I was sketching there. And that had a bit of a life. Like mm. That sort of took off a little bit. And the second one would be um, an overview of anthropology in the Annual Review of Anthropology, which is an American journal. And so it's a bit of a one-stop shop if you're wanting to get you know quick pulse reads on key issues. And that did not travel in Australia terribly well. In fact, people don't like it at all, and I got a bit of... (laughs) You ran the water cooler. And I got a bit of pushback, and if I um, had a chance to rewrite it, I'd probably get more pushback because I was trying to be really polite, and now I would just say, gloves off. I wouldn't hem my bets in the way that I was in that essay. But those are my only two explanations, because I don't travel there all that much. I have been there for very undercover work, and... Uh, I had a Churchill Fellowship and I spent six months dragging myself around North America trying to come to grips with how to improve Indigenous education. And what I was doing was looking at those places in the States where education for non-whites or, or disadvantaged students of whatever kind 
um, had been done and done well and what was the architecture, what was the policy systems, what were the research feeders, what were the setups to enable that. And I looked at charter schools, I looked at all sorts of things and I went, you know, from Los Angeles to Colorado to Washington and bizarrely I was allowed in as a public servant to the educa Federal Education Bureau and I was given a pass key and I said, it was just, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but I did it. And it was when George Bush was president. My main memory of that, this won't have anything to do with anthropologists knowing me. It's got nothing to do with it. I just Sorry. want to tell this story. Yeah. So being a bureaucrat in the Federal Bureau of Education is really strange because it then, don't know if it's the same now, federal education or federal bureaus in the States operate radically differently to... Australia. Australia is so small and we're really federated. Really, the United States is, of course, a federation of countries, sub-countries, mm -hmm. and with much vastly bigger populations. And the federal government there, in terms of those bureaus, they really prosecute around 7% of what affects populations policy-wise. I mean, they're in charge of the big things, right, the military expenditure and stuff. But mostly things are done within the states like you know Colorado mm -hmm. and then within provinces and within metropolitan regions where taxes can be raised taxes can be raised within districts mm. which is extraordinary and that's why they have voting systems for things like school boards and blah blah so it's a really difficult that the, the differences are extraordinary but what was really interesting was this culture of difference within the bureaucracy so you had non-white people occupying pretty much non-jobs in the lower floors of this high-rise bureaucracy. Mm. And on the upper floors, Bush had populated the bureaucracy with Texans. And so you had all these Texans who, if they were women, they were really smart-looking. They had beautifully Botoxed faces. They had um, straightened hair and pouty lips. And to a person, when helicopters went past the building they would stand to attention because it could be the president. They would stand to attention because it could be the president. And on each floor, there were photos of Dick Cheney as well as President Bush. So I don't think that's what gave me renown, if I have any, <laughs> in the United States, but it's a vignette about the United States that heard it here first, folks. An incredible scene. And we uh, all stand and salute you, <laughs> Tess. And so with all of us standing and saluting Tess, we would like to thank both Tess and Cameo Daly for joining us on another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. So today we've been speaking with Dr. Tess Lee from the University of Sydney and Cameo Daly from uh, Deakin University. If you'd like to learn more about Tess's work, you can find her at the University of Sydney webpage or on Twitter at Tess S. Lee. And if you'd like to find out more about Cameo's work, you can find her at Deakin University's webpage or at Cameo Daly. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles and Timothy Neal, with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter as well. I'm at DH Border Giles and Tim is at TD Neal. And if you enjoyed the episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. 